0: In 2009, Newsweek magazine called Rabbi David Saperstein the most influential rabbi in America. He served for over 40 years as director of the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, where he lobbied on Capitol Hill on behalf of Jewish causes and religious freedom, while simultaneously overseeing national social justice programming for the largest segment of American Jewry. And during the end of the Obama administration, in the beginning of the Trump administration, Rabbi Saperstein served as U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, becoming America's chief diplomat on religious liberty issues, a topic you may recall hearing about in an earlier episode with Sean Casey. Rabbi Saperstein is an attorney who's taught church state law for 35 years, and he's been a prolific author of many mainstream articles and most recently the book, Jewish Dimensions of Social Justice, Tough Moral Choices for Our Times. He was the first chairman in 1998 of the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and he's married to a journalist, Ellen Weiss, who I think must have given him tips before clarion interviews he's given on Oprah, Meet the Press, ABC Sunday Morning, Rachel Maddow, and a bevy of other talk shows. Sitting down with Rabbi Saperstein today is a brilliant up-and-coming journalist, McKay Coppins of The Atlantic, where he writes regularly on American politics, faith, presidential campaigns and other stories of compelling human interest. McKay is an active member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and he's a regular contributor on CNN and MSNBC. His forthcoming biography on Mitt Romney, out October 24th, 2023, is called Romney, a Reckoning, available wherever books are sold. This wide-ranging conversation that he and Rabbi Saperstein have covers a lot of territory, from first-hand diplomatic encounters on behalf of the U.S. government to moving memories of Rabbi Saperstein's father, also a rabbi, traveling to the Holy Land and to Danzig in Poland in 1939. Religious freedom is no guarantee. It can rise and fall as it has throughout the world in the last two decades. Yet somehow, the experience of living as a religious minority, at least here in America, offers an animating clue for what's good and needed and true. Enjoy the conversation.
1: Rabbi Saperstein, thank you so much for making the time to do this. I appreciate your willingness, and uh, I'm excited for this conversation. I wanted to start by kind of framing the conversation a little bit around religious freedom and what we're really talking about when we talk about that issue. Because I think in a U.S. political context, religious freedom has taken on a certain partisan connotation unfortunately it's often invoked in the US culture wars when we discuss conservative christians and their their rights and and i think because of that a lot of americans think of religious freedom in somewhat narrow terms but obviously in your work you've seen that this issue is much broader and more expansive internationally especially than it is when we talk about just, you know, U.S. culture wars. So I want to begin by kind of asking about the problem. And I guess my question to you is, how widespread is religious persecution in the world today? And is it a problem, in your view, that's getting better or worse right now?
2: Religious persecution globally has clearly worsened in the last couple of decades, and it's part of a broader context of growing restrictions on human rights, on democratic structures and forms of government as well. Freedom House that monitors this tell us from the end of World War II through 2006, while different situations pertained to different places across the globe, and there was an ebb and flow, the midpoint of that ebb and flow globally was in an expansive direction of more democracy, more human rights, more religious freedom. Since 2006, sadly, and alarmingly, the midpoint of that ebb and flow has been regressing back towards more authoritarian forms of government, greater restrictions on human rights, on freedom of the press, freedom to protest, on the rights of prisoners, on freedom of speech, and on religious freedom as well. So, if you look at it as a global scene, things clearly have worsened since the end of World War II, and certainly in comparison to what it was in through the end of the 20th century. So, this is a serious concern. Studies by some of the groups that look at international patterns tell us that the good news is that three quarters of the countries in the world really do not have serious restrictions on religious freedom bad news is that of that quarter that do are china and india and pakistan and nigeria and some of the most populous countries in the world so that over 75 percent of the world's population lives in countries that do have serious restrictions they may come from the government they may not come from the government Um, Here, they may come from social forces or from competition and hostility between different religious groups in the country, but there are serious restrictions of religious freedom. That's a very frequently recited statistic, so I just want to offer a caveat that's often overlooked. In many of those countries, the majority group actually has relatively few restrictions on their religious lives. There may be autocratic dictatorial uh, restrictions on other expressions of human rights, but it's part of the majority community, particularly in those countries that have kind of an official religion. They may not be living day to day with restrictions that they feel. We may know that those freedoms are endangered as the structures of democracy and human rights are being eroded because once autocratic governments can rule over everything in a society, they are going to be frightened by people organizing their lives around ideas and principles and peaceful practices that the government can't control. And that includes the religious lives of people. Autocratic governments have often frightened by the ability of religious communities to organize their lives Mm. around the ideals and principles and practices that the government may feel are threatening or don't understand or are worried about what might be going on behind the scenes. So it's a complex set of issues on the global scene. But in general, the answer to your question is, alarmingly, sadly, and uh, hopefully, source of mobilizing people of conscience who want to protect religious freedom, things have worsened and the time to stop the worsening is now.
1: It's so fascinating the way you describe that because it seems, and correct me if I'm I'm wrong or I'm mischaracterizing your point of view here, but it seems like you're saying that The decline of religious freedom is usually one of, it follows the general global crisis of democracy. In in your view, is the decline of religious freedom in a given country where democracy is under threat, does it come first or is it a lagging indicator? Are there other signs of democratic distress that come first?
2: I don't think there's a constant answer to that on the global level, a consistent answer between countries. Again, countries that have established preferred religions where the government is identified with the religious group, it may be a lagging indicator, except Mm -hmm. for minorities. Minorities will be a leading indicator in those countries in terms of restrictions on majority religious freedom. It may be a lagging indicator in those countries. But the inexorably intersection. Of general human rights with religious freedom, I think are clear. If you do not have freedom of speech, you do not have freedom of the pulpit. If you do not have freedom of the press, you can't publish your religious um, books in accordance with what you think is appropriate when the government is going to regulate everything in what they think is appropriate if you don't have the right of association the ability to celebrate your holidays together to worship together is going to be undermined and threatened you can't have religious freedom if you don't have human rights more generally and if you don't have the right of freedom of religious belief and practice and peaceful practice and the freedom of religious conscience, you're not going to have other freedoms as well. And they are jeopardized. So it may be which comes first, the chicken and the egg. (laughs) It differs country to country. But overall, everywhere, they are linked together. You're not going to have safety for any rights if any of those core human rights can be undermined and controlled entirely by government idiots.
1: Well, and you said something really interesting about how autocratic regimes are often afraid of the power of religious communities and uh, presumably the meaning that they give to their adherents, the ability they have to organize resistance to autocratic regimes. In the work that you've done, and you've seen a lot of the world, is it your general view that religion, you know, because it can go both ways as we we all know, but is it your general view that religion, is a democratizing force in these societies that it's important for a thriving, you know, religious community and religious pluralism to kind of prop up and sustain democracy? Again, a complex
2: question, <laughs> and it depends on, on circumstances. So let me give you a couple of different scenarios. Yeah, to please. Explain the uh, illustrate the complexity of this. In countries that do not have a tradition of strong democratic rule and a commitment to human rights, that if they move dramatically in a sudden change towards democracy, think of the Arab Spring. The forces that had tended to be the best organized were the ones that were working underground And in the religious community, they tended not to be the mainline expressions of Mm. Islam or Christianity or Judaism or Hinduism or Buddhism. They tended to be the ones that were under oppression, under persecution here, that were fighting back against the repressive government and trying to take control themselves of political power. They're organizing very often underground. And when all of a sudden the restrictions are lifted, they're often the first at a best place to take advantage of new opportunities. And we've seen a number of cases where the first elections went to fairly extreme religious entities that immediately imposed a new set of different kinds of restrictions on the societies that they had taken power on. So that's one example of that. Mm. Another example is, which we've seen in many areas across the globe, when democracy is threatened, religious communities often play a very important role in offering stability, offering a non-corrupt institution in a society that is really harmed by corruption of key leaders throughout the uh, society and and police forces and military throughout the society. Here are groups that are continuing to provide social services that helps keep things stable, Education to young people that gives them hope for the future here, and where there is interfaith cooperation between people, modeling how disparate elements of a society can live together in the very act of working together to address the injustices and the uh, repressions and oppressions and discrimination that exists in a society. So there are times where religion is a powerful force for democracy is integrally woven with the enhancement of human rights and offers stability in a society And we have all seen elements of extremist groups that have reached political power. Think of ISIS, and uh, it's just one example, or militant Buddhists in in Myanmar, or uh, here militant uh, groups of Hindu groups in areas of India. Here we've seen repression of uh, groups. There's no guarantee That more ability of religious groups to function is going to result in a more uh, stable society, a democratic society in the short run. But in the long run, Mm -hmm. that won't happen or be sustainable without religious freedom as a bulwark of the conscience of a nation and the ability of people to live their lives in accordance with their most precious beliefs through peaceful practices of those beliefs.
0: Can I ask Rabbi Saberstein a little bit of a different variant to McKay's question about religion being a democratizing force? I'm curious about how religious liberty as a prism impacts the way you see some trends playing out in the world today. For example, the last decade or so, you know, the United States, the United Kingdom, in Germany, in Hungary, in Italy, in France, certainly in Russia in a whole different way, you see sort of a rise of, of autocracy, a rise of death, but a bit. Is religion downstream of that? Is religion a window of some kind with that alongside, or not necessarily so?
2: Again, a complex issue. There are many areas in which religion has been resistant to the movement towards autocracy, and there are many areas in which the linkage between certain particularly established national churches and the government has led to increased oppression and restrictions. Again, I think minority groups in India feel that the linkage of fundamentalist elements of the Hindu community together with this government has led to greater repression in India. I think that the ability of the Putin government to use the Russian Orthodox Church to pursue its agenda um, has strengthened the autocratic inclination, um, program, agenda of uh, the Putin government as well. But there are many places where the religious communities are amongst the first to push back against elements to restrict uh, freedoms. So again, it's a complex issue. And the question is, how do we strengthen the most positive inclinations of religion and the most pluralistic expressions of religion, people who are secure in their own religious beliefs, but are respectful of those who differ and want to work together to create a better society, a freer, more just, more equitable society. How do we strengthen those elements to be more effective? um, Because between extremist religious groups and the more mainstream, moderate Religious by moderate, I'm not talking about the theology. I don't care how fundamentalist the theology is. I'm using the term extremist defined by: Are you willing to use force, either governmental force if you have access to it, or physical force through your own terrorist activities here to impose your religious views on others? If you are, I classify that as extremists. If not, I'm calling it moderate here, no matter how liberal or fundamentalist the theology of the group is. But those who stand together for moderation are often at a disadvantage because they're not going to use force to kill their opponents. And extremists may feel justified and that their God has called them to eliminate anyone who stands in their way. And there's not parity between these two groups in realpolitik in the short-term level. It doesn't mean that the more moderate groups won't prevail in the long run, but in the short term, there's not parity, and often the more moderate groups are at a disadvantage.
1: I'm curious, in your work on the global scene representing the United States government, How you found that American conceptions of religious freedom differ from other governments and even other Western governments. I'm thinking, you know, just in the news today or recently, we're hearing about the Abaya ban in schools in France, which I think to a lot of American eyes seems kind of outrageous. And, you know, a lot of people think of France as a fairly enlightened Western, you know, country that has similar values of pluralism that Americans do. But then they look at things like this. And obviously, that's not this isn't the first flare up in religious freedom issues in France. And, and it makes me wonder, how different Americans, not just conception of, of religious freedom, but our prioritization of it, how that differs from other countries with otherwise similar liberal values.
2: So, as a segue from the last set of questions you asked to this question, let me just make one other comment yeah, um, that ties the two somewhat uh, together here. The implications of what I was saying about the interaction of religion with democracy, national security issues in various countries, etc., really led me as serving as U.S. ambassador for religious freedom to kind of shape the statecraft that I engaged in in a way to take some of these trends that we're talking about in account. It wasn't enough for me to come and preach about America's commitment to religious freedom, its notion of separation of church and state, to say that that, because it works for you, work should because it works for us, should work for everyone else. And one of the things I learned was, rather than talking only with the kind of ministerial-level people that I would engage with, the minister of religious affairs in countries that had such posts, the minister of justice, the minister of foreign affairs, you know, with the people that I would normally, after a while, it became clear to me that I really wanted to meet with the head of security of the country. Often it would be part of the interior ministry. Sometimes it would be a separate security ministry, but I realized if I couldn't convince the head of the security ministry, that the kind of freedoms that they could enhance in their country could help stabilize the country rather than undermine their control. That it didn't matter what the others told me, nothing was really going to happen. And so I made it a point to really try to nurture relations with a number of those who played key roles in the security apparatus of countries to help them understand that it was possible, not necessarily to take our full, robust form of freedom that I that uh, you know overnight like that um, it should be, but to take steps in that direction where they could see that would be confidence building message that there could be greater freedom of religion in their country that would not undermine the country's stability as a whole, but rather enhance it. So to go back to your question then. One of the things to recognize was we in America don't have the only answer. We have a robust, we've had a robust interpretation of religious freedom generally. For a long period of time, it was the same kind of analysis by the Supreme Court in the United States as applied to other fundamental rights enshrined in the First Amendment. That is, for the government to restrict that right, it needed to have a compelling interest, not just any interest, not just a reasonable interest, not mm. just a rational interest, but an interest of the highest importance. And then when it pursued that interest in a way that had to restrict a fundamental right of speech, of the press, of association, of religion, it had to pursue its interests in a way that least restricted the rights that were involved if there were a number of different ways it could go about its work. That was the general rule for a long period of time. And in America, we had the model of separation of church and state. We have an establishment clause. Our Bill of Rights begins with that establishment clause. And this was vital for us in terms of developing a kind of pluralistic country that we developed in America. And we can come back to talk about the U.S. situation as well. But it didn't mean that it was the only model. So when the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was written and then followed up by the International Covenant of Civil and Political Rights, the ICCPR, there is very strong free exercise language and a freedom of religion language in Article 18 of both of those. There is not the same separation of church and state. Our model is not necessarily the model for other countries. And it was recognized in many countries there are established religions. And there are many examples of countries that have established religions. You mentioned Great Britain. UK is an example in which the Anglican Church is the established church that have a very robust freedom of religion for people to live out uh, their religious lives. So we don't have the only answer to it. But there are a couple of indicia that we ought to look at. One, nobody's right as a citizen anywhere should ever depend on their religious identity, their religious beliefs, their religious peaceful practices. That's a fundamental citizenship right that is built into the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Secondly, religion, both individually in in community, have to have the fundamental rights to organize their religious lives, to organize their religious institutions, to preach their religious beliefs, to teach their religious beliefs, and to peacefully practice their religion as robustly as possible. The only limitation, like any First Amendment right, or any universal right in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, is that if your exercise of your right infringes on somebody else's and prevents them from living out similarly their rights, there's going to have to be a compromise made. And that's the kind of... Uh, so if there are countries that have established religion, preferred religion, sponsored religion, financially sponsored religion, it's fine. So long as and religion should be treated equally again in terms of citizen rights. If so long as that happens, there's a great deal of diversity of models that might work across the globe. So long as those fundamental rights that I've talked about are protected for all, and that's what is enshrined in the Universal Declaration and the ICCPR.
0: Can I ask if each of you would say a word about being a religious minority in America? I mean the sociology of that, the story of that. Being Jewish, Rabbi Saperstein. You're less than two percent of the country's Jewish. Being a member of the Church of the Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints, McKay. You know the number is very similar, a little lower. Does that color how you view religious freedom as a priority? Does that affect your view of of citizenship and how this is supposed to work in a democracy?
2: McKay, you want to take a crack at <laughs> it?
0: Sure, no. By the way, McKay has a book coming out about Mitt Romney in a few weeks that is worth your time. Thousands and thousands of emails and texts are part of the book, it's the background. So it's not just you, it's a presidential candidate in 2012.
1: I appreciate the, the book plug, as always, Josh. No, I, I mean, I do think that the way that I think about religious freedom and these issues, I mean, it's inevitably colored by my own experience. I grew up in Massachusetts, which is one of, at least at one point, I think when I lived there, we had the fewest Latter-day Saints per capita of any state in the country. And so, you know, it was me and my sister and a couple other Mormon kids in my high school, and that that was it, right? And so I inevitably encountered situations where people made ignorant comments about my faith or just asked ignorant questions. Most people knew nothing about Mormonism beyond what they had seen on South Park. And that was just the reality of it, right? And so I think on some level, that experience has fostered in me, at least I would hope, an appreciation for other religious minorities in this country. I often find myself, you know, I work at The Atlantic, the editor-in-chief of The Atlantic, Jeffrey Goldberg, always is trying to get me to write Mormon stories. And every time I do, he say, you know who's going to read this? The Jews. The Jews are going to love this story. They're going to understand exactly where you're coming from. And it, it is kind of true. I mean, look, pull back, like, you know, Mormons tend, while they tend to be politically conservative, they break with the Republican Party and a Especially the Trump era Republican Party on issues like the Muslim travel ban, on issues like refugees. Even uh, I remember seeing a study decades ago that showed that Mormons were much differed from traditional conservatives Republicans on the issue of school prayer presumably because they knew that if there would be any school prayer at their public schools, they wouldn't be praying the way that Mormons were taught to pray, right? And so I think, you know, in all those ways, you know, I'm not going to claim that I'm like a persecuted religious minority at all, but I, I do think that being in a situation where you are one of relatively few people who believe the things you do, go to church the way you do, pray the way you do, inevitably... Colors the way that you look at these issues, both in the US and, and internationally.
2: So, before answering about Jews, let me make some comments about the Mormon community and the Mormon church. I mean, many people think of it through filters that popular culture offers about it, television shows, mm-hmm. Broadway shows, et cetera. The interaction that I've had with it in, in many regards, over and above the religious freedom issues, has to do with the enormous human services component of the church and its you know, disproportionate impact on provision of human services everywhere mm-hmm. it's organized, even when there's small communities in countries across the globe. Soon as they're on the ground, they're setting up some kind of social service, human service kind of uh, community. The other thing that marked the Mormon community at a global level is there are groups that are minority groups, disproportionately the victims of discrimination, persecution, harassment. It's just the way it is. They're only, depending how you want to count, one or two countries left in the world in which... A religious minority controls a religious majority in the country. Everywhere else, it's government and the religious majority who are restricting religious minorities. Everywhere that I went, Mormons are superb about playing within the rules of the country. They never really push the envelope so far as to provoke kind of a response to them. And they're very effective in terms of saying, whatever it is, even if we face restrictions, we're going to live within the rules as robustly as we can within those rules, but they don't push by. A number of other groups that I can think of will push those rules very hard. Some, as a matter of religious principle, will push the rules because it violates their religious conscience and they end up in jail and persecuted in, you know, very robustly, by the groups. And I have enormous respect for their courage, enormous respect for their courage, different models about it. And it's fascinating to see how effective the Mormon communities as a minority have been across the globe. In the United States, it is a minority, you know, we're both minority communities, but we live in a country that is a pluralistic, has a pluralistic tradition and it's fairly robust freedoms compared to other places uh, across the globe. So I'm looking at These countries, where I've now been in 85 countries across the uh, globe, and it really is remarkable the path that the Mormon communities there have taken in order to live in accordance with their conscience as much as possible, but without violating what the laws and the rules of the country are within, and therefore don't end up with some of the same conflicts Mm -hmm. and tensions that uh, other groups do. Look, the Jewish community, one can argue, is the quintessential victim of religious persecution in the history of the world. We have been banished and exiled from lands that we've lived in sometimes for centuries, over a millennia. Here we were kicked out of England in 1290, in France in uh, the 14th century, uh, in the 15th century out of Spain. In the early 16th century out of portugal i mean we have been in spain and portugal for a thousand years and we've been victimized by church doctrine that demonized the um uh, the jewish community that led to hostility and pogroms and and attacks on jewish communities over the centuries more in the christian world than in the muslim world They have problems in the Muslim world too, Christians and Jews both, as Demi as second class citizens, but not the same kind of of physical attacks on the community that we had known in medieval Christian times. You're in, of course, the kind of prejudice and racialism that led to the Holocaust that saw one out of every three Jews in the world killed in the Nazi Holocaust. So we empathize with any group. You know what well, you—the story that you mentioned about Jeffrey Goldberg—is a good deal of resonance. I think to any Jew who would hear that would smile and say, "Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah, we know what it's like when people of conscience stand by the side and watch a minority group be persecuted, and so we're willing to come to the defense of any that we see uh, that we see being persecuted." So I think we share that kind of sensibility about America and appreciation for the freedoms that we have in America. But just out of curiosity, what's the buzz at the Atlantic about Jeffrey Goebbels' new post as the host of Washington Week, BBS's Washington Week?
1: You know, we always knew he was too handsome to stay off TV. (laughs) So it was inevitable. Get I, that I, guy hope, promotion. I, get I hope that, that guy Jeff promotion. is listening to this as I uh, enter <laughs> salary just,
2: negotiations.
0: it's just it's a good show. We should link to it in the show notes. It's yeah, great, absolutely, it's a
2: great uh-huh. show, and uh-huh. he is really one of this generation's finest journalists. He really is. Can't uh, disagree with uh, that. He grew up in my synagogue. That my dad was a rabbi. At. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Ah, yeah. wow. yeah. wow, that's great.
1: Well. Rabbi Safferson, you mentioned earlier that we should maybe return to talk a little about the religious freedom and religious pluralism in the United States and specifically as it pertains to national security. Because like you said, you know, we do have very robust protections. We have a religious plural we have a robust belief in. And I think for the most part, we are an example of religious pluralism, but certainly America has not been perfect in this regard either. And, you know, I think that the biggest questions about Religious freedom in the United States often pop up around the Muslim community and uh, questions of national security. certainly, in the years after this of uh, September eleventh we've learned about all kinds of surveillance of you know Muslims in America that's been a source of a lot of debate and frustration and I guess that my question to you is do issues like that complicate the United States ability to press other countries to take those steps toward greater religious freedom when we, of course, are not perfect models of it ourselves.
2: So my tenure as uh, ambassador began in the last part of the Obama administration and ran into the election of Donald uh, Trump. As that campaign was heating up, everywhere that I went where I would be talking about religious freedom and the treatment of minority groups people would say, well, what about Donald Trump? Isn't he saying these kinds of things? How come, uh, who are you to preach with to us about this? And, uh, you know, I, I would say to them with absolute certainty, well, he may be saying that now in a political campaign where you can say anything you want. But once he becomes president, he is constrained by the First Amendment or the mm-hmm. Constitution. And I don't think you're going to hear the same kind of things. I couldn't have been more wrong about uh, the continuity of the kind of demonizing language that the president used once he became uh, president, and uh, some of the hostilities that were generated around that, the Islamophobia uh, that was generated by a number of the actions that, that the president took. Look. All of our, we know that America is both an extraordinary country and a deeply, deeply flawed country. We were built on two original sins of genocidal activity against the native populations here in America and uh, the original sin of slavery as well, that we still have not worked our way through in terms of the responsibility the broader society has to those who were subject to those persecutions and devastating consequences to not just the generations that suffered directly from them, but of their descendants um, as well still today. And it is a time we're watching the growing expressions of hate in this country that began per things that at the end of World War II seemed there were cultural constraints. You couldn't make it in America. On a national level, if you said anti-Semitic things, if you said or acted on racist things, explicit racist things in this country, in the dark corners of the internet, things began percolating 10, 15 years ago. And then uh, we have seen now the Pandora's box open of by political leaders, including President Trump. Mm-hmm. who engaged in saying things that no one could have imagined a president could have got elected saying prior to his being elected. And the, um, it is a deeply troubling time. Once that Pandora's box was open, you can't just put things back in it and close it up. How do you restore those cultural constraints with an internet that allows anyone anywhere to say the most repulsive things? here, And despite the best efforts, and let's attribute good faith to the tech companies, a debatable proposition. But let's just uh, attribute good faith to the uh, tech companies, despite their efforts. Every day, millions of tweets and, and postings of all kind that are inculcating hate against who th- those they think are the other. So we're suffering through a rise of anti-Semitism, uh, a significant increase of hate crimes against Jews. Jews are discriminated against. More in the form of hate crimes or hate speech yeah, than any other religious groups. Muslims are the next highest, although Jews twice as many as, as Muslims. But African-Americans are subject to hate crimes and hate speech and hate acts at twice the level of Jews in America. So, you know, the LGBTQ community, women, the hus- the, the vocal hostility and the willingness to use violence. You know, we've seen the deadliest acts of anti-Semitism in American history in the last decade or so in this country. It is really a a very painful time for us. So it is a contradictory, paradoxical moment um, in history, and uh, America faces some real challenges that is going, and there's no minority group in this country, religious or otherwise, who will be safe if any group can be persecuted. And we're all in this together.
0: God by that was almost a sermon. And I remember being in a little group with you and some others a few months ago when you talked about your father going over to—I think it was Germany—and the synagogue. Uh, it's a storyline that you told. I thought was quite beautiful. Could you could you describe sort of the divergence of totalizing, top-down, almost genocide? Well, genocide from a different vision that that he encountered. Could you tell us that story, please?
2: My father was uh, a beloved rabbi uh, in the, the last generation. He served congregations from the early 1930s into 1990, the early 1990s, in an active uh, uh, rabbi at some of the largest congregations in the world. But in 1939, he traveled for the first time to the Holy Land in his first visit there, and then went on to the last World Zionist Congress before World War II, just a few months before World War II broke out. And he left the conference and traveled through Central Europe. He's one of the last to really see the glories of the extraordinary Jewish communities that for a thousand years had thrived in Central and Eastern Europe. He traveled to Danzig, Gdansk, where... Solidarity uh, began. Lake Walensia was based in Solidarity began. Gdansk is a city that went back and forth between Poland and Germany over the centuries. And it had one of the most beautiful synagogues in Europe. And he went to see the synagogue there. And he came to the site of the synagogue. And a synagogue laid in ruins. It was before the war. And there was a sign out front that said in German, come dear month of May, when an election happened and the pro-Nazi group took over control of the city, come dear month of May, and we will rid ourselves of the Jews. The only thing left of the synagogue was the beautiful portico surrounding what had been the glorious doors to the synagogue was the only thing still standing there. And My dad described the chills he had, he who had been an outspoken critic of the Nazis from the very beginning of 1933 when they first took power and had urged America to be strong fighting against the Nazis and opening up the doors to Jewish refugees throughout the 1930s, recognized the portent of destruction of Jewry in that area of the world. And he looked up and he saw that over that old doorway was written in Hebrew, the words of Malachi, have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Two messages, two signs, one of division, one of hatred, one of demonization, one of division, one of oppression, the other of unity, of all humanity, of a common God, a common humanity, justice, equality, a hope for a better world, kind of feel today. We feel both tensions in the world today with no certainty of the way it's going to play out. And that makes the work that all of us are doing on behalf of Religious freedom on behalf of social justice, of equality, of standing up for the other, of standing up for the minority, of standing against oppression of any group, more vital than ever. Before I, was going, I went into government, I was writing a book called Racing with God, The Use and Abuse of Religion in American Elections. We really see the politicization of religion in America today in ways that, you know, has been happening since the rise of the religious rights, since uh, Pat Robertson ran for president and, uh, and particularly on the more extreme conservative end, the willingness to use religious tests for office in election campaigns. Obviously, when Mitt Romney ran for president, a lot of people didn't understand what that meant. Mm-hmm. They were worried about what would happen if a Mormon became president. And he gave that remarkable speech in which he explained about religion. And I thought he did it really in an extraordinary way, understanding what people's concerns and fears might be, reassuring them, helping them understand what he stood for. And I'm really curious about your response, having focused on Mitt Romney, about the kind of message that he was putting forward to America about Mormons and what Mormonism means and its role in American society. It's interesting.
1: I covered his second presidential campaign as a reporter and was, you know, the only only Mormon reporter on the press bus, which was an experience in and of itself. But I saw kind of firsthand how this issue kept coming up for him on the campaign trail. And oftentimes it was brought up by conservative critics who were on part of the religious right. You know, I remember that there was a megachurch pastor who had endorsed Rick Perry who said that Mormonism was a cult and he wasn't a real Christian and and that was a recurring theme of his campaign. He was always trying to kind of sidestep that issue when he could and when he couldn't, he decided to address it head on and your that that speech you're referring to is at the Bush Presidential Library. Mm-hmm. And I have a, you know, I have this book coming out that's a biography of Mitt Romney. I have a really interesting scene about how that speech came to be. It was something that he felt strongly he had to do and it was a a speech he did not want to leave to you know his speech writers to help craft it was one of the the rare moments where he kind of locked himself in a hotel room shut off his cell phone and you know didn't take advice from consultants and kind of just wrote it himself and you could tell right it was something mm-hmm. that That's mattered true. to him a lot he could see that His running for president and eventually winning the Republican nomination meant a lot to Mormons, certainly. And I think he'll be remembered, part of his legacy will be as kind of the Mormon Al Smith, right? But also, I think that he was trying to forge a path for other religious minorities running for president, right? And he was one, certainly there have been a uh, lot of examples over American history. And you clearly are well acquainted with them. But, you know, it, it's not just John F. Kennedy. There have been plenty of ke- presidential candidates from who, who are religious minorities who see their religious identities and their beliefs become fodder for their rivals uh, and for critics on the campaign trail. Mitt Romney is just one of many examples. And, I, you know, I think that he, in the end, I think he did a lot of good for demystifying Mormonism for Americans. But, you know, one of the discouraging data points that I often point to is that at the end of that campaign in 2012, where there was kind of this national education about Mormonism, roughly the same percentage of Americans said that they wouldn't vote for a Mormon presidential candidate at the end of that campaign, as did at the beginning of it.
2: Which Do sign- you know, do you know oh, what ahead. the stats are now on that?
1: I actually haven't looked at the most recent stats. this
2: This is really interesting. It used to be when they would ask, would you vote for a mainline Protestant, an evangelical Protestant, a Catholic, a Jew, a Mormon, a Muslim, an atheist, that far and away the different expressions of Protestantism were way up there. And Catholics and Jews were much further down and all the other ones further down than that atheists at the bottom of this. In the last 16 years, the polling on this has showed Jews and Catholics have actually now surpassed both Protestant groups in people saying who they would vote for. Ah. Mormons have risen, not to the same extent, but have risen in That's the uh, polling. Atheists still do about as well as <laughs> they done in the past, which is surprising when you think about the growing number of the nuns. Mm-hmm. even recognize many are spiritual uh, <laughs> people themselves and they may be religious people even if they don't affiliate identify with any particular religion but a growing number of them really do identify as agnostic, but doesn't seem to change that polling uh, uh, number as much as some of the other ones here. I, I yeah. just
1: have to bring this up because you you brought up the polls. One of my favorite recent—I can't—I believe it was from Pew, but one of my favorite recent surveys <laughs> measured different religious groups in America and their attitudes toward other religious groups, and that also included atheists and I believe nuns, though I'm not—I'm not sure. But my favorite thing that I pulled out from that was about Mormons were, I think, the second least liked religious group in this survey. But they they were also, and this is kind of the most Mormon thing ever, they were also the only religious group that had positive feelings about every other religious group. (laughs) Uh, Including atheists, including Muslims, Mormons were like, yeah, we like all of you. And yet the kind, warm feelings are not necessarily reciprocated. I think that we, we are moving in a positive direction. And I, I, and maybe this is my Mormon optimism. I am generally optimistic about the future of religious pluralism in America. And, and that was actually the question I wanted to ask you to conclude. We've talked a lot about the problems, the crisis of religious freedom internationally, the threats to it here in the United States. What have you learned in your work on these issues that gives you faith and hope that we can work back toward the you know original kind of utopian vision of true religious pluralism both in America and internationally yeah i maybe i'm presuming too much but i assume that you you do see a, a way forward
2: well i mean you know that there are two strands of religious freedom thinking in america there's the puritan strand of this is a country of the new Israelites who had come to a promised land. All of their basic documents in the mid-1600s were were dotted with biblical verses for the laws uh, that they were passing. They thought this would be a Christian country. And that strand is, you know, it marked the Great Awakening in the mid-1700s that dotted the landscape of America with the local churches, and it infused the uh, Great Awakening of the mid-1800s that created our denominational system that we No, still today, and it energized the great awakening of the mid-20th century, the 1900s, that led to the rise of the moral majority of the religious right in America. And we're still feeling in the Christian nationalism that it's been part of America all along. The more dominant strand was that of the framers of our fundamental documents, the deists, the Baptists, the others who really wanted separation of church and state, who didn't see separation of church and state as anti-God and anti-religion, but what it's turned out to be a wall-keeping government out of religion that, in fact, has allowed religion to grow with the diversity and strength in America, Mm -hmm. unmatched anywhere in the democratic world except in India. Far more people still, even with the falling rates... Far more believing in God, holding religious values central to their lives, identifying with uh, houses of worship than any other democratic country that has a government established, government preferred, government financially supported religion here. So from my standpoint, that's been one of the glories of America here. And we have a paradox now in American life. On the one hand, if you think about religious freedom are the core elements I talked about before, the ability of religious groups to organize, to build their churches, to create their religious institutions, to build their seminaries, to build their parochial schools, uh, to teach what they believe, to preach what they believe, et cetera, et cetera. There's right to left agreement that there is enormous religious freedom in the United States. Mm -hmm. We are living through a moment where there is real tension between religious freedom and other civil rights protections, in which one group of people says, all I want is to be able to live in accordance with my religious conscience. I'm, you know, let others believe what they want, but I want to live in my relig- uh, with my religious conscience. So exempt me from any laws that would require me to violate that conscience. And others saying, If we allow exemptions against LGBT community, then why not against Jews or against Mormons or against Muslims? If you don't have to provide services to a uh, a gay wedding to a same-sex marriage, what about the person that says we don't want to do an intermarriage? I think a Muslim marriage or a Jewish marriage is an evil marriage. Or those who say my church preaches that blacks are inferior human beings. I don't want to do for marriages involving blacks either. Giving religious exemptions from poor civil rights laws will destroy the entire sch- uh, schema of civil rights protections. The hardest issues are those that pit valid moral principles against each other. And there's always going to be some kind of compromise about that. I will say this. I pray for the day. When the problem globally will be how to balance out religious freedom claims and other civil rights claims, because across the globe, we have... Hundreds of millions of people who are suffering persecution and oppression and discrimination of the victims of ethnic cleansing and genocidal activity who are imprisoned and beaten and tortured and executed simply because they worship God differently than the controlling powers in a country do. And we have to keep some perspective on the serious tensions that we have in balancing out these claims uh, here. I tend to come down on the liberal end of that. I believe that fundamental civil rights need to be protected. You can't have blanket religious exemptions. I do think, and differ with many of my liberal friends on this, that there are more, if if you guarantee those rights, there are more exemptions that can be given and accommodations that can be given to allow individuals to opt out so long as others provide the services, the question is, do people get their services served? And if they do, if we can accommodate religious uh, beliefs of the owner of businesses who subcontracts with someone else or with uh, uh, two people standing, uh, uh, clerks standing by each other, one providing services, one not, that we ought to find ways to um, accommodate that better. I thought the Utah Compromise it was a wonderful example in which that stayed in the LGBT community, Mormon Church, bringing the Catholic Church in, other civil rights groups found some accommodation, some agreement on this, although not in public accommodations yet, the hardest area. But it is a model for the rest of the country. And this, and the Mormon church played a pivotal role in shaping a compromise that mitigates discrimination against the LGBT community in education, in jobs, in housing, et cetera. And and it's an example of the kind of direction that we can move in.
0: It is interesting as we hear the text prodding us forward here, you know, in some ways, the Utah Compromise came out of religious depth, not religious minimalism Mm -hmm. in Utah. And that example in a very religious country like ours, thinking back to Bush and the Jesus Christ is my Political philosopher, favorite right line in the debate, thinking back to uh, Obama and the Reverend Jeremiah Wright speech that he gave in the similar way, it sounds like, to the way that candidate uh, Governor Romney wrote history. You know, we're a religious country, and sometimes you have very religious people who stand forward for office and almost get there or got
2: there. Well, just, uh, just, and- just remember, though, Josh, that those, for example, proponents of civil rights. More often than not, like Dr. King, are animated by their religious beliefs—the belief that all in the image of God, that God absolutely. wants equality for all people, yep. wants a just, equitable, equal yep. society yep. for yep. all groups. And abolition, women's suffrage—absolutely, you have good people on both sides who hold different things. I tend to believe that God really does call on us to to protect the fundamental dignity of all and give equal opportunity. Remember what I said before? No one's rights as a citizen should ever depend on their religious practices or beliefs. I say the same about the protected categories under our civil rights laws as well.
0: Well, thank you, Rabbi Cyberstein. Thank you, McKay Coppins, very much.
1: Last word's yours, McKay. No, I I just, you know, I hope that Your voice and other voices of wisdom and sanity can prevail in these debates because they are important ones and fraught ones. And as we enter another presidential campaign cycle, the rhetoric tends to get overheated. And I hope that we can hear more from you and people like you as we uh, as we weigh these important issues. Well, as we say from
2: your lips to God's ears.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much.
0: Faith Angle convenes leading journalists and leading clerics, especially those diligently engaged in the work of repairing the world. Thanks for listening.